Welcome friends, this is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 6th of February 2014, and today I'm joined on the line by Ryan Dawson, as I'm sure many of you will already know, the uh, founder and host of the Anti-Neocon Report at ANCReport.com. He's also at Rise Two Cents on YouTube, and I will of course include that link uh, in the show notes for this interview, so you can go in and find his work. Today we're going to be talking about his brand new ebook, which is also available for purchase there on the front page of ANCReport.com, called The Separation of business and state. So Ryan Dawson, it is great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure, James. It's always fun to talk with you. Yes, it is. And we have a very, very good topic of conversation lined up for this conversation because I do want to talk about your new ebook book. Once again, the separation of business and state. And I am so glad that you've put this in those terms and put it in black and white like this because this is a topic that I've been talking about and thinking about in various ways for a long time. But it really needs to be confronted directly and square head on because uh, there's so many important facets to this. So let me just quote from the opening uh, section of your book where you write, America desperately needs a separation between business and state. State, Such a system already has a name, one now intentionally polluted by some, called free market capitalism. We as a nation need to return to a form of capitalism that is untainted by rampant state-sponsored favoritism for select businesses with ties or bribes to members of the government. It's time for we the people to take a calm look at the economics and politics that drive our nation without all the agenda-driven spin. And there's a lot that I can say about that, but let me not head you off at the pass. Why don't you tell us about this book and what uh, uh, what prompted you to start writing it in the first place? Well, it, the book is actually a combination of, of lots of rants that I've said before on many topics from education to healthcare to the Pentagon spending and um, of course, a lot of the banking fiascos is a large portion of the book, the bailouts and so on. And I decided... These all have a common theme, and I could uh, make a book out of this, these things that I like to talk about all the time anyway, and section them all together and show the uh, the government has what I said is a reverse Midas touch. Everything it gets involved of, it makes it worse and more expensive. And so I just took a lot of categories and tried to calmly explain to people that I'm not, I'm not a corporate fat cat or anything like that. I'm just trying to show you that there are a lot of um, – false dichotomies and, and phony paradigms, not just left and right, but you'll have people who are either regulation or deregulation, for example. And I'll say it, it's not that regulations are intrinsically bad, it's that they're actually bad because the regulations that we actually end up with are written by lobbyists and corporations and they're used as protectionist policies um, for themselves. So you'll see that in the medical industry, for example, there's a regulation that won't allow Medicare to negotiate prices down. This is in America. Uh, with, so you just get uh, more and more expensive um, medical industry, education, higher education, and lower. What they do is they protect uh, small kind of um, cartels, depending on what the industry is through regulatory processes and then of course the Federal Reserve is the, the greatest regulatory capture ever because they can use the enforcement arm of government to protect their cartels and in that case it's over the money supply and so and that doesn't mean no regulation either but if you're going to have one you have to look at it case by case you can't blanketly dismiss them all or accept them all and you see a lot of that unfortunately uh, between left and right and, and libertarians too. Everybody has some sort of automatic formula for what they're supposed to think and it doesn't always even out uh, in the correct way like that. 
Well, the saddest part of all of this, to my mind, is that um, it, we've already probably lost a section of the audience simply because of some of the words that have been employed and people's automatic association with them. If you say the word progressive or if you say the word uh, regulation or if you say the word capitalism, there are people who have such strong associations, knee-jerk associations with those words that they cannot see through that to the actual underlying principles. And it boggles my mind that with uh, with the, the two major movements, uh, people's led movements that came along in the last uh, few years in the United States context with the Tea Party and with Occupy. Essentially, there were so many points of agreement between those two bodies, but they were spun away so quickly by the mindless uh, Fox repeaters who talk about Occutards and the minus mindless MSNBC repeaters who talk about teabaggers. Yep. To the point where it's just, it becomes a, a parody of, of political debate rather than any sort of actual political reasoning. Uh, and let's when talk they about the, the language that underlies this. The, the weird person to interview to help hijack and divert those but yeah the language the terms we have very um they're like emotional triggers we have very sensitive terms when you say capitalism some people think sweatshops and uh lockheed martin and and you know billionaires and they blame everything on that without seeing actually how what actually happens when you talk about the wealthy like i in the book i try to divide when you say the rich or the wealthy or you want to tax them or not you have to differentiate between business owners who actually provide jobs and labor and speculators which are complete just it's gambling really that's all that is and that's actually two-thirds of the whole money supply and you you can't just uh throw labels around so i try to explain what one side thinks, what another side thinks, and how both are wrong as much as possible. But yeah, even the word the word liberal with a small L, I'm socially liberal in the sense of accepting and stuff, but when with a big L it means something else. And the same with progressive. You have the Teddy Roosevelt type of progressives and then we have the Nancy Pelosi type progressives and the same thing with conservative. All these terms have changed over history and you if unless you are a student of history, at least political history it's very hard to follow because what one person says and means by the word is not what it might mean to another generation. When I, when my grandparents hear progressive, that's very different than than a kid today. And so y it's hard to um, tackle those unless you sort of define the terms first, or at least as you're doing it. You know? That's right. And, and I think a good example of this is when people try to identify the problem and you have people on the, the so-called left saying, well, it's all the corporatocracy, and they're right. And then you have yeah, people on the so-called right saying it's all big government, and they're right, without realizing they're talking about the same thing, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, there's actually there's sort of two methods that they do there. They'll say, well, the corporations are – it's all the corporations because they're bribing the government to, to act a certain way. And you can say, well, actually, it's the state – because they're the ones with all the power that's enabling the corporations by the, awarding them your tax money and everything. And it's the same result. And what it really is, it's, it's the state and corporations together walking on top of you. It's, it's not that one has to bribe the other to act that way. It's in their own interest to do that. Once people realized they could vote themselves money, it was over. And that's what they do. And we, we've had a massive abuse of no-bid contracts, for example, which were supposed to be for emergencies, but it's just a way to wipe out the bidding process and literally allow the government to award money to itself. Because when you talk about a corporation, look at its board members, 
because corporations are not just they're not companies they're publicly traded they don't just have a boss that gets oversimplified but if you look at their BOD they have overlapping membership with people in the Pentagon and people in the president's cabinet and the treasury or or you know name a department uh, and it's total insider trading that they're not only just investing in the people they're giving money in, they work for them simultaneously in the unelected portions of government, like the Pentagon is probably the largest one, uh, and then you, know, you have commerce, labor, etc. And they, they all do it. They all do it. So it, what we really need is separation of corporation and states and not just blame the government or blame the corporations. You have to see how they're working together and not get so fixated in belonging to a group or something on your left or right or whatever. That's really irrelevant. Well, it is, but if, if you people. wanted to drive a wedge between people, I don't think you could do a better job than what's been done with uh, the, uh, the the two ends of the spectrum that, as, that we've been presented with, the two acceptable ways of critiquing the problem, always ending up with people hating each other more than they hate the actual people who are at the root of this problem, which is a perfect thing for the banksters at the puppeteering at the top of this system. Isn't yeah, it? you saw that in the anti-war movement, too, a lot that was mostly anti-Bush or anti-Republican than it was anti-war. I was in those protests myself as being against killing people, against war. Uh, I didn't like Bush either, but it, it didn't matter to me if he, who he was. Um, Obama continued the same policies and the anti-war movement disappeared because they, they weren't really there for ideology for philosophical reasons. It was more tribalistic reasons. You saw that a lot. And you'll see another thing that, that I tried to stress right in the beginning is there are a lot of people on the so-called left that say the Bush tax cuts are responsible for everything. And that is a minor, tiny, tiny fraction of the wasted money by both parties that they do together, all of that is, doesn't matter. And this mythical belief that if only we taxed rich people more, we would have all these social programs. Why do you, are you going to assume that the government, our government, it, my American government, is going to be benevolent and redistribute that money to the poor when we have a long history showing if you just give them more tax money, they're going to have more expensive and larger wars. That's where 51% of the discretionary taxes go, is to blowing up foreigners overseas or aid to Israel or Rwanda or whatever, the, or all their you know privateer financed terrorist cells and things. They, they're great at wasting money. So increasing taxes because you think rich people don't pay taxes enough is not is a a simplistic, crass, and silly solution because the government's not going to redistribute it to the homeless or something like that. That's not what happens. It certainly isn't. Well, let's let's get to, into some of the brass tacks because this is a wide-ranging and, and pretty in-depth book in a lot of different categories, as you said, energy, environment, healthcare, all of the ways that the anti-Midas touch of government uh, basically ruins everything it touches. And uh, you do an excellent job of really, I think, painting, painting in a lot of detail and really dissecting the financial crisis of, uh, of the last decade that led to the bailouts, which, again, both sides of this phony spectrum are 100% against, and yet they can't unite to actually do something about it. Let's talk about that financial collapse yeah. and how we it really came We have to be clear, about. too, that there was a bailout, a kind of public bailout from by the government that people got upset about, and then a secret bailout from the Federal Reserve that there was a Bloomberg report and GOA audit of, but it, it did not get the attention it should have. Uh, and people confused that. When they heard about that bailout, they thought it was the first one. So you had two sets of that, plus Obama's stimulus package, which was also a bailout. 
Uh, and then you have uh, this more specific thing to General Motors and certain companies too. But mainly it was to the financial institutions, Citibank and Goldman Sachs and so on. Uh, Citibank's the one that set up the SIVs. I don't know how if, how in-depth you want me to explain that. But yeah, we had uh, a mortgage-backed security scandal that affected the entire world. It's the biggest ripoff ever. Uh, close to $20 trillion when you add them all together. $20 trillion with a T, which I can't even get my brain around, like how humongous that is. And almost nobody went to jail. Nobody was held accountable. In fact, they got bonuses and they got to gobble up their competition. Uh, one example was the Bank of America, which bragged that it didn't get bailouts in the public version. It didn't. Um ended up acquiring Countrywide, which is one of the premier institutions for predatory lending for houses, and Merrill Lynch, they, who are their competitors. They absorbed them, and both of them got bailouts, so they got that. And then we find out Bank of America was the second largest recipient from the Federal Reserve's secret bailout, plus they got the TARP money. That's an, another additional bit, the toxic asset release. They got that too, and they spent 100% on paying their administrators, their managers, and bonuses right in front of you, in your face, and no consequence. And, um, I mean, other than Forbes and some written financial uh, blogs and, and magazines and things, it wasn't really covered on TV, not on CNBC, which if Dylan Radigan was still there, he probably would have blown a gasket about it. But very few people reported it and, and sadly even understand it, I think. No, but but once again, I will encourage people to read the book because I think that your uh, your description of that was one of the the best uh, short synopsis that I've read of the the what led to this, and and that you go into a lot of detail about how they're making. Um, there was fraud at every single level of this, from the the, the people who are uh, rolling these up into into the yeah. mor mortgage backed securities and oh, like the, the people CDO, who make the investment banks, the rating agencies, and the lending institutions. All of them were guilty of crimes. And then on top of that, your insurance companies when, and you had your SIVs and your credit default swaps. And I know these are like um, hard terms, but I explained all these. That's why you should just get it. And I, I tried to take complicated things and make them simple with tangible examples. Say Absolutely. That. Well, again, I think you do a good job of that. Um, and as as I say, there's a lot of different areas that you cover here. But one that I'm particularly glad that you covered is the revolving door that exists between um, biz uh, uh, business and, and state when it comes to the Defense Department and the military industrial complex specifically, because I think there's a growing and, and a large awareness of things like the Monsanto revolving door in the alternative uh, media. But something that hardly ever gets talked about is the military brass and their connections to defense contractors. Let's talk about that subject. Yeah, and Monsanto was uh, piggybacking on United Fruit, and there's a chapter about Banana Republics in there, too, which I kind of wish I had made longer, but, uh, you know, it explains it. But the Pentagon, you're right, and to me, this this is the most important one, because as upset as I get about the financial rips-offs, it's a lot of fraud, and people lose their homes, and there's a lot of damage, but in the military revolving door, they're sacrificing lives. People are getting killed. On our side, too, the Bradley Fighting Vehicle was one of the examples I used, which was uh, almost all our entire casualties in the first Iraq War were men in the and women, too, in the Bradley Fighting Vehicles, which was just a sitting duck aluminum can. Um, because the military sort of has an air of impunity. This is why the environment 
and education too. It's a subject you can't touch because of course you've got to be pro environment. Everybody's pro education too, but spending more money on it doesn't always make it better, just more expensive. And there is no incentive to be cost efficient. In fact, there's every incentive to do the opposite. And I gave examples from from different um, administrations, from Kennedy, a, a Democrat that's a, actually a mediocre president compared to the ones that came after him, all the way up to, uh, I think, Reagan, uh, of Republicans and Democrats and how they waste money. But what you start seeing is what Eisenhower warned about. You'll have a, a vehicle or something where there's a part made in every state just to include as many congressional districts as possible to spend money on something, whether it actually works or not, doesn't matter. And that's why you have all these weird hybrid vehicles so that they can combine Navy budgets with the Air Force budget and stuff. And what you see is the, the military is treated like a toy. And these are real people risking their lives and they just don't care. They just send them out like cannon fodder for corporate interest. To just it doesn't matter and they give them weapons that don't work. The F-22 fighter jets, for example, with the weird way it uptakes oxygen and the stealth that doesn't work. And these are $422 million a piece. They fall out of the sky. The Osprey is another example. The F-35 is another example. F-16 is a good plane, actually. But there's a ton of things that are made just for the sake of it. Tanks, which most of the generals say are obsolete and unnecessary in modern warfare. But they build them anyway. Because they're expensive. And that's what people have to understand, that this is an industry. It's not about defense. It has the, that layer that, for their impunity to say, these are our boys and support our troops and increase spending, defend freedom and these abstracts. And that's what allows them, I think, to just spend ungodly amounts of money on utter crap uh, and, and kill people. And get our own guys killed too. Exactly right. And and what is it? The F F thirty five or whatever they're making that's up to however many trillions of dollars over over oh, budget. Yeah. And they sold a bunch of those to Okinawa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, don't worry, they're they're moving the airbase around on the island, so apparently that's that's all taken care of now. The M twenty two V Offspring is the best because they can. It's a it's a tilt rotor plane, sort of a helicopter, jet, hybrid, whatever. It's the first to ever learn upside down, <laughs> which it did. Um, pilots have died. They've crashed. And these haven't been used in combat. They sold a lot to Saudi Arabia. Don't, doesn't even have pilots for them. But I, I think we already talked about that. That whole thing is just a money cycle. That's what it is. And uh, that's what our money spent on. Over half of our taxes are on the military. And that's not just – they're very clever with statistics because they'll talk about the budget for the Defense Department, which used to be named the War Department. In fact, I have a book right here that says the War Department. But, um, the DOD budget is $700 billion this year plus something. That's over half a trillion already. But you have to look at – Things that aren't included in that budget that are definitely weapons. Nuclear bombs are in the Department of Energy. Why? It's not nuclear power, but that's where it is. Um, a lot of the Star Wars stuff is in the State Department, or they hide it, hide the budget in other departments. Plus, all the intelligence agencies. 
13 of them. I can't even name them all without tripping over myself. But mainly the CIA and the DIA and the FBI and the NSA. Well, that's the big, big one now. Um, there's billions and billions there. So you're looking at over a trillion dollars a year to do what? To fight our terrorists that we help create to begin with? I mean, And continue to fund and aid in Syria and other places. Yeah, we fund and aid them in Syria and in Yemen and in Somalia and in Mali and that's and in Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, still, you're 13 there, I think. Yeah, and then there's yeah, there's MEK and Jandala and Al Nusra and Al Qaeda and uh, we're supposed to be fighting these bad guys, but we give them money, we give them guns, we give them training, we set them up in part of the flow of the drug trade of heroin and so on, uh, which you and Sabella have covered enough, so I don't have to go over that, but. Yeah, it's a it's a play fight. It's you know we need a pretext for military presence and terrorism. Terrorists are the new communists. Yeah, exactly right. It's People the new have seen decades oh. of deception. I went over how many times we cried insincerely about communists so that we could mess with Central America. All right. Well, we could go on and on and talk about all of these problems. We could even talk about the solutions, which, again, are not particularly controversial. There are a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum, again, that would um, that would agree with the idea that um, there is something beyond just taxing the rich or just cutting social welfare. How about we cut the corporate welfare? Everyone can agree, agree to that, except for the corporate fat cats themselves. But uh, the real question, the $20 trillion question is, how do we move the conversation to that point, given the types of mental barriers that have been erected around these real solutions? Yeah, I think you have to approach it, one, without a label. Like, don't come in saying I'm an anarchist or libertarian or whatever. Just come in saying we need to cut corporate welfare. And everyone will assume you're one of them, you know, because everyone agrees with that. Everybody agrees with that. Um, cutting foreign aid, I think most people agree with or reducing it. Um you know, not ha not saying we shouldn't have no bid contracts. You sort of lose people because they don't know what that means. But keeping it simple, and I think that one, corporate welfare for sure, for banks as well as for military industries. But you don't have to necessarily spell it out. Just say corporate welfare, and they'll they'll understand. Yeah, we we don't need to be bailing out all these people with billions of dollars. That's kind of what got Occupy originally going was the bailouts of the banks and the tea party taxed enough already well they they don't want the same thing and and i think most people could agree on that they just get caught up in these wedge issues and these sort of um socially fun things to argue about that aren't really even legislative issues and they get they get watered down by that and so we have to really keep it simple because not everybody's political uh, and we have a lot of low information voters too, but you have to just keep coming back to it and say we have to cut corporate welfare, and these are the people that vote for it, and you have to make that a, a one-issue pony to say maybe no more wars is a good. That's a nice way to save money. We don't need to have all these wars and occupations everywhere, and we need to cut corporate welfare. And then there's a whole CDE, but don't worry about that. Like that's the two. If we could do that, I mean, getting rid of the Fed's a big thing, but I don't think we can get to that point until we start reducing their grip first on the Congress that the lobbies have. Uh, and I think that starts by people getting really upset about corporate bailouts and welfare. They have to pay all that money back, 
and we have to stop bombing people. So peace and ending that kind of welfare. And we have plenty of money left over for whatever social programs that are struggling. We, we'd have plenty of money already for that. And there are other market solutions that are better than, than social welfare too. But I don't think you can really get that. You just can't bring up too many issues. And so I think we have to start with uh, ending war and then sec- and I think also ending corporate welfare. I think two is enough and that would be a good place. And there's easy solutions for that. Do you think the internet is actually contributing to this, uh, this, this uh, I guess, the, the, the building up of these walls between people that people are in, caught in their little echo chambers to the point where they become fused and wedded to these ideologies and, and uh, to the point where they just don't even want to think about how they could cooperate with someone who doesn't agree with them on every point of doctrine? Yes and no, because before the internet, they were not political at all. They're just watching entertainment stuff on TV. And so at least now they have a click and at least they're on, on the radar. So, and so there is some of that on the internet and then, and then not. It depends on how it's being used. But people do generally preach to the choir and stay in their safe circles and just block anyone that doesn't have their point of view. Um, so it's hard, it is hard to even reach those people on the internet and it's really the, the one-on-one kind of way of a message spreads. And I think with the book, like I make videos and all that too, but I think with a book where you can sit down calmly and read it and you can yell at it all you want and you can take as long as you need to read the information, it's, it's a, just a, another medium I think that will help uh, get the message across because you can give the book to somebody and say, I heard you talking about this. You should read this chapter. And what do you think about that? And then it's safe because it's all on me. You can attack me all day, and you didn't say it. So when they get, if they get upset or something, they can get mad at the book. But I think if they do read it, it is they'll somewhat. It's got to bring them that direction. You go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. I I didn't know that happened or something, um, because I do try and give the devil's advocate argument within the book and then counteract myself. <laughs> so, well, that, that's a good way to bring this conversation full circle. So once again, why don't you tell us about your website and how people can purchase the book? Uh, sure. Well, my main website is ANC Report. That stands for Anti-Neocon Report. I started that back when the, the neocons were very prominent and they still are. They're just more in the shadows today. And the book, uh, there's a link on there to to donate to get the book. But in a few days, it'll be up on iTunes and Amazon. So actually, if you want to wait for that, it's fine. And the links will all be on the front page of ancreport.com. And you get whatever format you favor if you read on a phone or a desktop, of, you know, whatever your device is, it should fit that fine. So that's where it'll be. Okay, good. And as I say, the link to your website and to your YouTube channel will be in the show notes for this interview. So, uh, Ryan Dawson, a very important topic. I'm glad that you're covering it again in your book and uh, broaching this conversation. I think it's something we need to be thinking about more generally in the alternative media. So thank you again for your time tonight. I do I do want to thank Kalen Babcock for this cover. This cover was my idea, but he actually 
got on the Illustrator or what have you and made it, which was really cool. I like the silhouettes kind of look like Winston Churchill and Uncle Sam. Yeah, exactly. right. No, exactly. And for people who are listening to this uh, interview rather than watching it, yes, it is a it is a very nicely designed book cover. So um, worth it just to just to check out the cover, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, go look at the cover anyway, just because it's cool. And it's not Americentric. I do pick on the American government a lot. Because there, that's the one that has the most warfare, and the one that where I'm from, and maybe know about. But these kind of systematic problems exist wherever you live, pretty much. It's the same sort of tactics and strategies that they use, whether you're in the UK or Canada or Brazil or Japan. It's the same thing. Unfortunately, as both you and I are here in Japan under. Abe, um, I think we both know too much about how this uh, is transferable to pretty much every political context these days. So again, I do appreciate your uh, your time tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, in about 20 minutes, we'll have a podcast on uh, Japan and Abe and, and Hashimoto. So they can Excellent. check that out too. Looking Thanks, forward to James. It. Thanks for all your work. Uh, and I'm looking forward to your Federal Reserve podcast documentary whatever that is <laughs> <laughs> so am i so are all the listeners trust me on that one and it will be out in the next few weeks i promise all right thank you Ryan. all right <laughs>